This section will discuss the belief system that's known as Shiism. Sunnis and Shiites are quite different from each other. Uh, although we can both classify them as broadly belonging to Islam, they reflect two very, very different approaches towards the legacy of the Prophet Muhammad. Sunnis emphasize very strongly the Sunnah from their name. The Sunnah is the way of the Prophet, the way that the Prophet acted, and it's exemplified by his uh, by the reports that are given of his actions and his sayings. It's this legacy that is essentially the preserve of the ulama or the ruling religious class of, uh, of Islam that gives Sunnis some sort of coherence. Shiites react quite differently towards the Prophet Muhammad. For them, Shiism is based upon, uh, upon allegiance to the Prophet Muhammad's blood descendants. Now, the Prophet Muhammad had four daughters who came to maturity. Of those, only one, Fatima, the youngest, actually married and brought forth children of her own, providing uh, the Prophet with all of his male descendants through that single line. This descendant line uh, has led to a group that's known as the Twelve Imams. We'll come back to the significance of the word imam in just a, in just a moment. But these people, the Prophet Muhammad, his youngest daughter Fatima, her husband Ali bin Abi Talib, and those two grandsons, Hassan and Hussein, are what is known as the family of the Prophet, or in Arabic, Ahl Bayt. They're referred to in a certain verse of the Quran, uh, Surah number 33, verse 33, which it says, Stay in your homes and do not display your finery as the pagans of old did. Perform the prayer, give the alms, and obey Allah and his apostle. Allah only wishes to turn away abomination from you and purify you fully, O people of the house. Those people of the house, that family of the prophet, that Ahlulbayt, are seen by many early Muslims as being the repository of the true teachings of Islam. After the prophet died, there was a contesting a contest about his about his succession. Uh, he left no absolutely agreed upon successor. Sunnis believe that his appointment of the first caliph Abu Bakr as prayer leader during his final hours was actually the appointment of of Abu Bakr as his legitimate successor. Sunnis on that on that basis do not regard familial allegiance or familial uh, connection to the prophet as being a necessary prerequisite for rule in Islam. There were always certain Muslims, especially centered around uh, the figure of Ali, who is easily the most important of early uh, Shiites, um, who never really fully accepted that. They believed that the Prophet Muhammad and his immediate family were those people who not only had the right to rule, but had secret uh, or in certain cases even supernatural knowledge that was confined to them and that gave them spiritual authority over the rest of the Muslims. Now, a brief review of the history of Shiism can start with the name of Shiism. Shia, uh, Shia uh, in Arabic simply means a political party. 
on its most basic level, there were early Shias uh, that were not necessarily Shiite, that were associated with other different prominent political figures in early Islam. But the one that stayed associated with a given name was Shiite uh, Shiat Ali, the party of Ali. This is a, a, a very complicated figure in early Islam, and it's difficult to figure him out. Uh, of all figures other than Muhammad himself, there's probably nobody else who has received such a, such a careful whitewash, uh, such a careful ob, uh, obfuscation of what their true character was. But it seems that Ali... Uh, was possessed of personal bravery, but did not have the charismatic sort of personality that uh, the Prophet Muhammad did. Uh, for some 30 years after uh, the Prophet's death in 632, Ali uh, was uh, on the sidelines and uh, did not actually achieve prominence until 656 when he was elected by part of the Muslim community as being caliph, the fourth caliph after the death of the Prophet. This uh, election was always contested and is problematic. Um, in contemporary uh, Christian sources, Ali is oftentimes not even mentioned, um, and or sometimes this uh, this particular period is left as blank. Um, so it's clear that Ali was not accepted by the entire Muslim community, but those who did accept him accepted him absolutely and uh, would continue to fight for him and his descendants uh, until well after his death. This uh, process led immediately and inexorably to civil war. Uh, the civil war culminated in uh, the Battle of Safin in 657, in which uh, Ali fought his principal opponent, Muawiyah, uh, who was the leader of the Muslims of Syria, to a standstill. And essentially, the battle left uh, left Muslims at a draw. But Ali's position was uh, weakened immensely by it. Parts of his of his community did not accept the outcome of the battle and blamed Ali for it, and uh, left his uh, his army in disgust. And eventually, his rule of Iraq uh, collapsed, and he was assassinated in six sixty one. The Shiite community basically comes from that assassination. There were those adherents of Ali who once again could never accept the idea that someone other than the Prophet Muhammad's blood descendants, and the ironic thing is, is that Ali himself was not actually a blood descendant of the Prophet, but that his blood descendants were the ones who had the sole legitimate right to rule inside Islam. Now, gradually, gradually, as uh, the 7th and 8th centuries uh, continued, became, uh, more and more Muslims coalesced around the idea that the Prophet Muhammad's family actually did have the right to rule. This is centered on the question about what constitutes political and religious legitimacy in Islam. Political and religious legitimacy has usually uh, been focused on several different ideas, some of which are traditional Arab in nature, involving uh, one who is munificent, one uh, who has a certain type of genealogy, uh, one who has certain cultural attributes and so forth, like being able to, to declaim poetry but uh, or, or bravery in battle. But Islamic legitimacy 
oftentimes coalesced around two basic ideas. One of them, Sunni, which is that a, a person who is the best possible Muslim should have the right to rule. In other words, either educationally or uh, from, a, from a defending of Islam point of view. And the other idea, the other polar idea, is, is that the blood descendants of the prophet or his blood family are the ones that actually have the right to rule. That's the Shiite uh, point of view. Now, uh, for some time after the death of Ali, uh, the Shiites were, uh, were dormant in general. They were tended to be located in what today we would call southern Iraq, but contained adherents really throughout the Muslim world. Uh, and those adherents were very excited uh, when in 680, uh, Ali's younger son, al-Hussein, uh, was uh, invited by certain members of uh, the community in Kufa to come and rule them. This invitation was ob obviously sort of a code word for revolt. And uh, Hussein was, was surrounded and captured in October of 680 uh, near the town of Karbala, where he was massacred. There's no doubt that this particular event uh, was a traumatic one, and we'll probably uh, we'll be able to discuss it uh, during the next section, uh, talking about Shiite martyrology. Uh, but suffice it to say that that particular event also ripped the Muslim community apart because it began the process of moving Shiites away from actually uh, from some sort of a consensus with uh, Sunnis. Sunnis, from that particular point onwards, were always those who stood with the government, whatever government that is, and oftentimes Sunni uh, ulama were willing to make uh, compromises with the type of government that they had. Uh, they were usually in control. And so by default, they accepted the martyrdom of Hussein as being legitimate. Shiites were those who did not accept that and who viewed the blood of Hussein as being something that is, is an eternal injustice and continually bubbling forth from the earth, as it were, uh, in protest against uh, oppressive governments uh, centered around the Umayyads. Now, only one of Hussein's sons actually survived the massacre at Karbala. Um, and not surprisingly, he led a, a politically quietist life, but gradually, gradually uh, coalescing around himself and his descendants, small group of followers. It's from that group of followers, and especially from the fifth and sixth imams, uh, Muhammad al-Bakr and Jafar al-Sadiq, uh, who died during the 8th century, that we come to most of the teachings that we can now call Shiite. Now, some of those were of a rather extremist nature, and gradually, uh, over a period of centuries, uh, Shiites have modified many of those teachings considerably, um, and some of them still today are held by various different uh, sects in, uh, that have sprung off of, uh, of Shiism. Some of them have to do with the divinity uh, of, of various different imams. There are many teachings that emphasize the supernatural uh, knowledge of the imams, their, uh, their infallibility, sometimes their uh, ability to work almost godlike miracles. 
their communication directly with God, which allows for the possibility that some of them might be somewhat similar to the prophet Muhammad and their pre-existence even. In other words, that, uh, that existence prior to the creation of the world. So the, uh, the imams were, were very special. That word imam, which in, in Sunni literature basically means simply somebody who leads a prayer. Imam in Arabic just means to be before something. It's almost a preposition. Um, so an imam is simply a person who's before everyone else. And in Shiism has come to mean a, a person of supernatural and almost, uh, almost godlike powers and knowledge. And he has the ability to take the Quran and to interpret it, sometimes to interpret it in, in ways considerably different from the, uh, from the meaning of the plain text. Uh, and so that opens up the possibility that imams are oftentimes possessed of something of an esoteric or secondary uh, interpretation to the Quran that is not open to other Muslims. Now, the fact is, is the presence of the descendants of the Prophet uh, uh, presented something of a, of a challenge to, uh, to the Muslim government of the Abbasid dynasty uh, that took power in the 740s. Um, to some extent, uh, taking power on the uh, on the backs of uh, of Shiite apocalyptic and messianic expectations, and using their slogans essentially against them. So, the Abbasids were more than familiar with Shiite propaganda, and they understood their because the Abbasids were the cousins of the of the uh, of the family of the Prophet. They understood the power of propaganda and also the power of coercion in a way that the Umayyads actually had not. And so, over a period of the next uh, hundred years or so, as the Abbasids continued in power, uh, they progressively more and more began to oppress the, uh, the members of the Prophet's family. And certain numbers of them, uh, such as the last four imams, basically spent their entire life in what we would today call prison camps. The, the official government simply could not allow these uh, important figures to, be, to roam freely uh, around. So when the last, uh, the 11th imam... Uh, was uh, when he died, his, uh, he was left at least nominally without any children. Um, at his, uh, at his uh, death, at his funeral, uh, a young boy appeared and said that he was the son of the last of the 11th Imam and that he was the 12th Imam and that he was the Messianic figure, the Mahdi. Um, and so he's known in, uh, in uh, Shiite lore as Muhammad the Mahdi. Um, but he disappeared shortly thereafter. And this is probably the second most uh, important event that happened in Shiite history, the, what is known as the occultation of the Mahdi. Occultation in that particular sense means to remove something from immediate view, something that is obscured from, from popular view. So the occultation of the Mahdi is, uh, is essentially the idea that there is an imam, this 12th imam, but that he is in hiding, that he is in occultation 
until he will be revealed at the very end of the world. And his life since 874 has been artificially uh, continued, uh, elongated, well beyond human proportions. And so essentially he covers up the idea that there's no longer a physical, actual contact with, a, uh, with an imam. Now, this is an important point because it was very important for Shiites up until up until the 870s to know that there was a living imam, an imam who served as something of a connection between the Shiite community and God. But the fact is, is the is that the the actual existence of such an imam oftentimes caused more problems than it was worth. Um, because frequently these imams did things that were uh, inexplicable from the point of view of Shiites. Uh, they sometimes came out with heretical doctrines or uncomfortable statements that uh, were difficult to explain away. Uh, and so probably the best thing for Shiism that ever happened uh, was that disappearance of the 12th imam. And the ability to coalesce around that magical number of twelve that uh, that brought uh, the Shiites back to the time of the Prophet Muhammad. The fact that uh, Muhammad al-Mahdi was no longer physically present uh, enabled a whole group of Shiites, which we would call now ulama, to coalesce around and, and to build up a body, body of teachings, uh, which could then be called Shiism or con uh, conventionally called Twelver Shiism. There were other different Shiite groups uh, that held to other different lines of, Shia uh, of Shiism. Some, uh, for example, the Ismailis that held to uh, uh, there being a, a pattern of seven imams uh, throughout history, um, where we will not uh, be touching upon them that much. But uh, suffice it to say that the major group of, of Shiites has always been the Twelver Imam, uh, what's known in Arabic as the, uh, the Ithna Sharia. Um, and they basically began to coalesce around the 900s uh, as a series of, of prominent ulama and, uh, and educational figures began to develop what exactly is Shiism uh, as a belief system. Now, even at this particular point, it's important to note that Sunnis and Shiites still had a great deal of mutual interaction. And Sunnis uh, still considered Shiites to be part of the fold. That was not true uh, 500 years later, but it still continued on in certain different ways um, uh, throughout this, uh, this middle period. Some of those uh, examples of, of the belief system were, first of all, the, uh, uh, the scholars laid down what exactly are the qualities of the imam, why is the imam important, why is, uh, is, uh, is an imam necessary for, uh, for belief in Islam. And in that regard, they polemicized extensively with, uh, with, uh, with Sunnis. Um, they also developed sectarian rules. The fact is, is that uh, is that Shiites, really since uh, the time of the assassination of Ali, have had a sectarian character, even if they were not cast out of the of the fold of Islam entirely by Sunnis. 
they always had uh, sort of the secretive nature to them the, because, uh, because governments would oftentimes persecute them. It's not at all unusual inside the historical sources to find a given government uh, destroying a certain quarter of a city and killing all the people in it on the off chance that they might actually finish off the Shiites uh, in a given area. And so that lent the Shia something of the qualities of a, of a, of a secret party or a sect. Um, oftentimes Shiites from a social point of view would use secret hand motions or code words uh, to identify each other. And so a whole social uh, group of norms known as taqiyya or precautionary dissimulation, in other words, lying to save one's skin, uh, built up in order to protect the Shiites. The idea that one could lie or deny uh, what one truly believed, uh, even to loved ones, to betray them, and to, to be deliberately false towards anybody who might constitute some sort of a danger against uh, the Shiites became very strong and embedded inside the belief system. And so a great deal of the material that we have about the social structure of Shiism at this particular period uh, presents it as kind, of a, as, as kind of a secretive, almost closed society. Now, that does not necessarily mean that the prominent scholars that are associated with Shiism were actually secretive. Uh, they lived out in the open, but many of the, of the Shiites actually did, uh, uh, did uh, have a rather secretive existence. These theologians uh, tended to be rationalistic. And this is a very interesting uh, development uh, inside uh, Sunnism. The rationalistic tendency of the Mu'tazila uh, was discussed and in some cases uh, promoted by certain caliphs during the, uh, during the 8th and 9th centuries. But ultimately it was rejected as both an intellectual system and then eventually as a religious system. But Shiites accepted it. Now what did this entail? This entailed a... a a belief in the absolute justice of God, uh, in his inability to, uh, to, to do anything that would be fundamentally unjust, uh, in a, a rationalistic interpretation of the, of, of the Quran, and in a basic acceptance of reason as a, as a, a method, as a tool by which uh, one could uh, uh, analyze Islam as well. Um, not surprisingly... Uh, eschatology is extremely important in uh, in Shiism. Uh, discussion about the Mahdi and how to communicate with him is of absolutely crucial importance. And a great deal of the polemics between uh, between uh, Sunnis and Shiites concerns the issue of the Mahdi, with uh, Sunnis uh, ridiculing the idea that anyone has been given uh, a lengthy life in the same way that the Mahdi is said to have had sometimes asking, you know, where is your leader, uh, and other different unanswerable questions of that nature. Um, Shiites, from their point of view, uh, have always maintained that there is some sort of communication between their leadership and the Mahdi. 
books are filled with all sorts of different what are known as talkiat or little notes or uh, uh, types of, of minor communications that are associated with the Mahdi that he will give uh, to various different leaders and so forth. And in our own time, we find the rise of the prominence of, uh, of, the, of the mosque at Jamkaran, the, uh, the major mosque uh, that sits a little bit to the south of the, of the holy city in Qum, uh, which has been identified as being supposedly the location of the Mahdi uh, and the place where he lives. Um, and a last point is, is, that, uh, is that rituals are extremely important for Shiites. Um, there's just absolutely no doubt that Sunnism as a belief system is comparatively weak on, uh, on festivals, on rituals. The only two that are really mentioned are the, the Hajj festival and then the festival that finishes off Ramadan. There's a few others that can appear, such as the birthday of the prophet and sometimes local ones uh, that oftentimes predate Islam. But uh, th- there's no doubt that, uh, that for the purposes of, uh, of, of festivals, Shiites really have uh, a far more deep and rich cultural tradition than do Sunnis. As a matter of fact, the Shiite calendar is very heavily dominated by its martyrology, uh, and various different uh, times are celebrated or mourned uh, with regard to uh, to the assassinations or killings or tortures of uh, various different imams. But those are also counterbalanced by oftentimes celebrations, uh, births of, uh, of various different prominent figures. Uh, such as members of the Prophet's family and so forth. And so the whole calendar has the quality of being a very much of a, of a community-involving sort, of sort of festival-oriented calendar. The structure of Shiism is uh, quite different from that of, uh, of Sunnism. Uh, Sunnism really avoids any type of hierarchy, although one can find different figures who are call, or have a spiritual authority or who are called by various different titles, such as the Sheikh of Al-Azhar, or sometimes uh, in, in classical times the figure of the Sheikh al-Islam, uh, who is usually appointed by the Ottoman Caliph. Uh, it is very rare to find anyone who views themselves as actually underneath their authority. Sunnism has always allowed for the possibility that the believer would go his or her own way. In other words, interpret the Quran or the Hadith in virtually, uh, in virtually their own way. That has not necessarily been the accepted method, but it has always been a possibility within Sunnism. Shiism, on the other hand, because of the directed nature of the imamate, has always had a hierarchical character. In other words, the imam was the direct link between the prophet and Allah and, uh, and the believer. 
and so when the imam disappeared, in other words, physically disappeared, went into occultation, then that particular position was taken by the ulama. Now, the ulama at that particular time, the Shiite ulama, were, uh, it took a while for them to become uh, structured. But there gradually appeared the figures of what we would later call the ayatollahs. Ayatollah in, uh, in Arabic means the sign of God. Um, and sometimes the, uh, um, the, the family of the prophet is actually called the signs of God, ayatollah, inside the Quran. But more commonly, this ayatollah is, uh, is, a, is a figure of some hierarchical power that gradually began to develop inside the Shiite community as a, as a leadership. Now, the supreme figure of the Ayatollah, uh, of all the Ayatollahs is the one that's known as the Marja Taklid. Marja means a place that one returns to. Taklid means uh, somebody who is followed. And so Marja Taklid means somebody who's, uh, is, is, is kind of maybe what we would call the reference point of, uh, for, for people to follow. This particular figure, uh, for, uh, the last hundreds of years has been, uh, the, a uh, hierarchical leader of the uh, of the Shiite community, and it's really quite remarkable, actually, how much consensus he has uh, been able to generate among the sometimes fractious, rather, uh, ayatollahs, and also how much independence the ayatollahs have been able to preserve as well. Um, now, part of that was facilitated by the fact that gradually by uh, by the 13-1400s, Shiites were beginning to lose their sectarian character and becoming majority populations in various different areas. And that happened most strongly when uh, in, the late 15, in the early 1500s, uh, Iran came under the control of a, uh, of a Shiite dynasty. And by around 1700, most of the people of Iran had converted to, uh, to Shiism. Today, there's only uh, insignificant minor populations of Sunnis in, uh, in Iran. Um, but this, uh, this actually lent the Shiite population some geographical stability, finally. Uh, and they could a actually begin to teach and proclaim their teachings and uh, preserve their books and traditions uh, in an open way that uh, had not been the case prior to that time. So one of the problems with researching early uh, Shiism is the fact that Shiites lacked any sort of geographical stability. And so, consequently, their books and uh, and their materials are oftentimes only preserved by their enemies, uh, who sometimes collected them uh, for the purposes of refutation and ridicule. A concurrent development, which happened during the 18th century and 19th century, was the conversion of southern Iraq uh, to Shiism, uh, which is still continuing on uh, to this very day. Now, Shiites... Uh, continue to be spread throughout the entire Muslim world. Um, and it's important to discuss where exactly they are and what kind of, uh, what kind of characteristics they have. Probably the oldest Shiite community then would be that area of southern Iraq, 
uh, which, although it was not fully converted to Shiism uh, until the 19th century, 18th and 19th century, had always had a significant Shiite population, especially around the holy cities of Najaf and Karbala. Uh, these are the two locations where uh, Najaf was the, was the location where uh, Ali was assassinated, and Karbala was the place where, uh, where Hussein uh, met his death. So these are the two of the most holy locations for Shiites uh, from a classical period. And both of them have continued to be centers of, uh, of Shiite learning even to this present day. Um, but from a, from a population point of view, most of the tribes around uh, those areas had been actually Sunni until this comparatively recent period. Um, but uh, during the 19th century and continuing on into the 20th century, mass conversion of, uh, of these tribes took place. And a very strong Arab, uh, Iraqi, Shiite leadership began to develop that continues to dominate even to this very day. Um, today, uh, one finds that despite uh, the uh, the problems that uh, that Iraqi uh, Shiites have uh, had to involve themselves in since uh, 2003, uh, the their leader uh, Ayatollah Sistani continues to be a spiritually dominant figure throughout uh, the Shiite world. A secondary area of extreme importance is Lebanon. This is not surprising given the, uh, the mountainous nature of Lebanon and its tendency to attract throughout history uh, groups that were otherwise despised or uh, persecuted throughout the Muslim community. So, uh, starting definitely in the 1500s, many uh, Arabic-speaking uh, Shiites began to coalesce in Lebanon, especially in its southern, uh, especially in its southern area, and uh, they established their schools of learning that continued to have a very strong axis with Iraq and then later on with Iran. The Lebanese uh, Shiite community, however, was very strongly oppressed under the Ottoman rule, and uh, somewhat then that continued unto, into uh, the independence of, of modern Lebanon, which we'll discuss in the next uh, section. By far the most important Shiite community is in Iran. Uh, and this is, again, rather a surprising development to one who studies uh, uh, religious history, because um, uh, up until the 1500s, uh, Iran was basically a stronghold of Sunnism. Um, and it is by no means an, ex uh, an expected event that there would be such a mass and uh, relatively painless conversion to Shiism that would take place over a period of some 150 years. The process, however, is an interesting one. Um, a, 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 a Sufi dynasty that had been located in what is today the northwest uh, of Iran, near the town of Ardabil, uh, in the mountains close to Azerbaijan, uh, had over a period of time, a period uh, lasting almost 150 years, uh, starting from the 1350s uh, into 1500, had gradually assembled around itself an extremely large following. Uh, 
Um, and this this group had uh, had morphed first from being a Sufi group to being an extremist Shiite group, which uh, held to the idea that its leaders were actually manifestations of God. And when uh, in the late 1400s, early 1500s, uh, this group managed to gain enough power to actually take over the geographical area that we today call Iran, uh, they began to convert the Persian people to, uh, to Shiism. This conversion, uh, as I said, was, uh, was relatively painless, uh, but gradually the, uh, the rulers, the Safavids, had to ab- abandon uh, their, um, their extremist uh, ideology uh, and uh, promote a more centrist, moderate uh, form of Twelver Shiism. But since that time, the, uh, uh, the area of Iran has always been the powerhouse of Shiism, most especially located in the holy city of Qum, uh, a little bit to the south of, uh, of, uh, of Tehran, where one finds major uh, seminaries and educational institutions and usually the locus of, uh, of the, the highest ranking of all the different ulama and ayatollahs. Um, other different important Shiite uh, um, populations can be found in, uh, especially in Pakistan and uh, in East Africa, and uh, and located in various different places, uh, especially in Europe and in North America. Now, most of these populations tend to be uh, of South Asian extraction. Um, South Asian uh, Shiites uh, are mainly converts that uh, have appeared during uh, during the past 300, 400 years and uh, were moved around extensively by uh, British colonial uh, leaders. So Shia, Shiism it doesn't really take up much more than uh, than around fifteen percent of uh, of the total Muslim population of the world, but it has gained a great deal of prominence, mainly because of the Iranian Revolution. Um, for a generation, really, the Iranian Revolution or the Islamic Revolution that happened in nineteen seventy eight through seventy nine uh, was a defining uh, action. Um, this, uh, this revolution is very closely associated with the figure of Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, who was a comparatively minor ulama, uh, Ayatollah, who opposed the modernization process that was, uh, that Iran was going through in, uh, the early 1960s. This is a figure who uh, who had rejected uh, new legislation concerning uh, the role of women, uh, the downplaying of Islam within the within the Iranian society, and a number of different other uh, prominent measures taken on by the secularizing government of the Shah of Iran. During the course of the 1970s, uh, the Shah's uh, regime became more and more uh, intolerable to the uh, to the Iranian people, and uh, by the end of the of the decade of the 1970s, he was having to deal with large scale 
revolts and, uh, and and protests against his rule that were not only spearheaded by uh, by radical Muslims associated with Ayatollah Khomeini, but also included uh, left wingers, um, uh, secularists, and a large number of other different uh, strands of Iranian society. So. In 1978, uh, uh, the Shah fled, and uh, and Ayatollah Khomeini assumed power, and he began a process which we can call the Islamic Revolution or the Iranian Revolution. The Iranian Revolution definitely energized world Islam and Shiism in uh, specifically. Ayatollah Khomeini, who was the dominant figure between 1979 and his death in 1989, uh, was a very careful political maneuverer who, during the period between 1978 and uh, 1981, gradually, gradually maneuvered each one of uh, the elements of the coalition that had brought down the Shah out of power until only the most radical and hardline of uh, the Muslims were left. And he was, by popular acclamation, able to assume the title of what was known as Supreme Guide or Supreme Leader. In other words, he became the Marja Atuk lead. Um, but most commonly, most commonly uh, by Iranians and other Shiites, he was called Imam Khomeini. Which raises uh, some very interesting questions about his place, actually, in uh, the um, uh, in the Islamic uh, Shiite world. Um, there are even those who would suggest that maybe he was a reincarnation of the of the twelfth Imam, or he at least had powers or knowledge uh, or charisma that was associated in some way with uh, with the twelfth Imam. In other words, suffice it to say that he seems to have been the only person inside uh, Shiite lore other than actual imams to have ever had the title of imam. And so he's oftentimes referred to as Imam al-Khomeini. Um, probably the best thing that ever happened to Khomeini and the Islamic Revolution was uh, the war uh, that was uh, imposed upon Iran uh, in 1980, in September of 1980, and lasted for the next eight years uh, with Iraq. Um, this had the force and effect of stabilizing this regime and enabling it to, uh, to uh, present itself as a defender of traditional Iran, traditional Persia, against uh, an Arab invader that sought to, uh, to de detach a province from its control. So the Iranian Revolution was not only confined to Iran, but it spread well beyond Iran, Iran's borders, and it uh, it proved to be an energizing factor, really throughout the Muslim world. Khomeini himself sought to downplay to to the extent that he could the divisions between Sunnis and Shiites and really viewed himself as kind of a champion of Islam overall rather than just a sectarian. And this is very much the, uh, the line that the Islamic Revolution has continued with to this day. Now, that is not an easy line to take. 
there are certain elements of Shiism that simply cannot be resolved with, uh, with Sunnism. The major one of those is the hostility towards the companions of the prophet. Basically, Sunnism sees the companions of the Prophet as being the primary mechanism through which the Hadith and the Sunnah is transmitted to uh, to all Sunnis and thereby the entire world. For Shiites, these companions of the Prophet are that group that collectively denied the Prophet's family the rights that they had legitimately to rule. And so, while the Shiites venerate Muhammad, Ali, and a few of those companions that supported Ali, such as Salman al-Farisi and and several others, uh, Amar and Hudayfa and so forth, um, they vilify and oftentimes curse those particular uh, members of uh, the Prophet's companions uh, that did not support Ali, which were the vast majority and most especially the first three caliphs, uh, Abu Bakr, Omar, and Uthman, who, from a Shiite point of view, have taken the place of Ali. They, they usurped a place that was not legitimately theirs. And so, oftentimes, in conflicts between Sunnis and Shiites, one will find that the Sunnis will associate themselves as uh, the supporters of the companions, uh, and oftentimes then, uh, such as in Pakistan, you find the supporters of the companions versus the uh, supporters of the Prophet's family. And obviously the Prophet's family then are, uh, are Shiites. Um, but the issue that, that causes the most problems between Sunnis and Shiites is that fact that, uh, that many Shiites feel the strong need to actually curse the Prophet's companions or to vilify them in ways that are really degrading. And th- there's no question that Khomeini, as a, a very canny politician, sought in, in different ways to, uh, to, to minimize that as much as possible. He also sought to, uh, to, uh, to work with Islamic education as much as, uh, as, was, uh, as possible. And to that end, you find Iranian uh, centers of learning all over uh, the Muslim world, and gained a number of different converts to to Shiism. This is something that that worries Sunnis no end. Um, having uh, recently traveled in West Africa, I can attest to the fact that uh, uh, that Sunni ulama regularly worry whenever uh, whenever an Iranian center is opened up in a given area. There's oftentimes fears. That uh, that Shiites will try and convert local Sunnis to Shiism and uh, and thereby uh, gain power in areas that are already entirely Sunni. So, in general, and to sum up, uh, Shiism Shiism is a sectarian form of Islam. Its basis comes from the the power struggle and the question of who has the legitimate right to succeed the Prophet Muhammad. For Sunnis, that right is one of election and the best possible Muslim. For Shiites, it is a a blood relation uh, that has that right. Shiites are very focused towards the end of the world. 
They're very conscious of the fact that uh, that in this present world they've been denied justice. Very much Shiism is about the achievement of justice, especially for the murder of various different members of the Prophet's family. And the consciousness that that will not be achieved actually until the end of the world. Shiism is, uh, is very much a social phenomenon of, uh, of non-Arab Muslims. Now, despite the fact that there are Arabs who are Shiites, such as in Lebanon or in Iraq and so forth, traditionally uh, Shiism has been very closely associated with the aspirations of non-Arab Muslims who felt that they were either disregarded or downplayed by Arab uh, nationalism to some extent. And oftentimes, uh, Shiites will present themselves as being uh, better Muslims because of that. That they are not tainted in any way by the the sort of Arabocentrism that one can find so often in uh, in Arabic Muslim writings. That they are much more globalistic in their uh, in their tendencies. Shiites are also much more uh, much more uh, associated with personal purity than uh, than our Sunnis. Uh, when one travels in Shiite areas, there's oftentimes a very strong aversion to any physical contact uh, with uh, with non-Muslims. In uh, in for example, in um, uh, in the 19th century, even up until the earlier 20th century, it was forbidden for uh, for Jews or Christians to go outside in Iran uh, when it was raining, uh, lest uh, some of the water that they would splash would accidentally touch a, a, a Shiite. It's oftentimes a very extreme attitudes of, uh, of personal uh, purity that would be associated with Shiism. So Shiism uh, at the present time continues to grow, but it also continues to be very much aware of the fact that it is a minority interpretation of Islam uh, and will continue to be such. Thank you.